The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our reading today is from Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, everyone. What a great, uh, great delight to be with you here on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. My name is Paul Lim, and I have the privilege of serving here at Christ Press as a scholar in residence, which means that every, every other month I'll be preaching, and every Sunday, for the most part, get to lead in uh, adult Sunday school classes. So it's been a great delight for me to do so. Um, so um, today's sermon is a very interesting one. I, had, I love the title only because I didn't give it, so I can say that I really love it. Um, I might have mentioned this to you before, but I'm not the one who come up with the sermon text and title uh, that I'm allowed and privileged to speak. So when I got the news that I'm to speak on Galatians 2, 11 through 14, under the title, Social Anxiety, Healthy Conflict, and Redeemed Community, I was quite eager and excited to address our congregation on this topic. But I did ask myself this question. Did Cephas, also known as Apostle Peter, have social anxiety in first century context himself? Uh, this would be a very uh, important question to ponder throughout our conversation together. So um, if it is okay, let's uh, pray together one more time and we'll look to God's word. Gracious God, we thank you that you are the one, the one that we've been waiting for, the one in whom we find our delight and joy, particularly through the Advent season in which our desires are kindled and rekindled to longing for you. As we live our lives, especially through Thanksgiving and Christmas season, we realize that life can be really hard and lonely for some, perhaps even many of us. Gracious God, we thank you that our relationship with you is the one that anchors all other relationships. And may our journey together as a congregation be one that ascertains that beautiful reality in various ways through the liturgy of word read, proclaimed, and participated in the Eucharist and also our fellowship together. So Lord, as we come together at this time, may you do a wonderful work of strengthening us, encouraging us, comforting us, and lifting us up unto you. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. So what I will do today is to offer a quick contextual background to our, the biblical story and then to let you know the three points of our sermon and get you on your way home or elsewhere eating, starting with the Lord's Supper and then the other meals that we call lunch or brunch, etc. So um, I made it right around 31 minutes uh, during the first service, so I'll try to get the same thing going. So. All right, here we go. So when this Jesus following movement got going was initially, as you remember, all Jewish movement. 
And I hope you remember that. So it was, so the, the hope for Israel and consolation of Israel was longing for the messianic figure to come and right the wrongs and restore the kingdom to Israel. That was one of the things that was really a central kind of plot line in all of Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And when this thing really became a thing, this whole Jesus movement, it raised all kinds of critical and crucial questions, such as who is in and who is out? How does one get into this community? What should you eat and what should you not eat? And perhaps most importantly, with whom can I eat? And what does that act of eating symbolize and communicate? So I want to ask you this question, who do you eat with? Who did you eat with over Thanksgiving? As innocuous as that question might be, that has been the cause for some not so mild controversy for Jesus, for he was criticized for eating with quote-unquote tax collectors and sinners, unquote. Furthermore, when the Jesus movement got going under the leadership of Jesus himself, the scope and boundary of his ministry was for the Jews. You might remember some of Jesus' sayings to that effect. But by the time we come to Galatians, say in the late 40s or 50s AD, this Jesus movement has spread beyond Jerusalem and Judea and was gaining converts among the Gentile communities. As we shall see then, the cause of this confrontation between Cephas, also known as Peter, and I'll just call him Peter from this point on, and Paul had to do with eating, to be more precise, with whom Peter was eating and what message is sent to people, Jews and Gentiles alike, about the identity of the Jesus-following movement, indeed the identity of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah himself. In other words, whom you eat with tells you a lot about the type of person we are and we wish to be, and conversely, the kind of persons we don't want to be or associate with. Again, in the case of, let's say, Adam and Eve, it had much to do with what they ate, whereas in this case of Peter, apostle, uh, and it had everything to do with with whom he was dining. As we shall see for Paul, Peter's changing of eating companions. He used to eat with Gentiles, and if it is okay, we can maybe uh, put the biblical text on the screen so that we can see it together. That it really kind of, that who he was eating with caused much social anxiety. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So social anxiety, this phrase, how contemporary these words do sound to us in December 2019 in Nashville, Tennessee. And as our title indicates, there is an interesting beeline that connects us and Peter in terms of how we construct our identity based upon the issue of who is included and excluded from our friend group or dining table. That's equally true for people in their 70s as well as teens, equally affecting grandparents as well as sixth graders, it seems to me. Social anxiety surrounding eating. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving could be a great time for many families and could be a very difficult time for other families. Perhaps it is uh, not without reason that both CNN as well as Fox News did a, like they offered counsel on how to talk about politics with your family members during Thanksgiving. You know, it's all, often a difficult time to talk about these matters. 
social anxiety surrounding eating, who will be seated around your dinner table, Thanksgiving, and otherwise. So it really has a lot to do with eating and who is invited and who is not invited. And that actually rings true in our lives. Who you will invite to your party, who you will, you will not invite, and those things do matter. It does tell us a lot about where we are. You knew that, I guess, none of my sermons would be complete without serious engagement song lyrics. And today is no exception. So these days, I had been listening to and watching the video of one of my favorite bands from the 80s and 90s, although I suspect they might still be going these days. Uh, they are R.E.M. And R.E.M. had a song called Everybody Hurts. I've been listening to it for some reason a lot. I mean, in my 20 years of teaching, 14 years at Vanderbilt, I've noticed a genuine kind of uptick in terms of students going through difficult times in terms of depression and anxiety disorders and many other types. And I was thinking that, you know what, this is actually not just, you know, um, endemic to people outside of the church, it's also true inside. So I want to read you some of the lyrics from this song, Everybody Hurts from R.E.M. When your day is long and the night, the night is yours alone, when you're sure you've had enough of this life, well, hang on, don't, you, don't let yourself go, because everybody cries and everybody hurts sometimes. Sometimes everything is wrong, now it's time to sing along. When your day is night alone, hold on. Hold on, if you feel like letting go, hold on. If you think you've had too much of this life, well, hang on. Because everybody hurts. Take comfort in your friends, everybody hurts. Don't throw your hand, oh no, don't throw your hand. If you feel like you're done, no, 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 you are not alone. If you're on your own in this life, the days and nights alone, when you think you've had too much of this life to hang on, well, everybody hurts sometimes, everybody cries. That's partly why my eyes jumped at the words that are titled social anxiety. And I said, wow, what a great way to connect the ancient first century apostolic struggle between Peter and Paul with our own contemporary issues of social anxiety. I suspect, well, no, I'm in fact sure that these things from the words of R.E.M.'s song, you've had enough of this life, or everything is wrong, or that you feel you're, not on, you're on your own in this life and the days and nights are long. These words don't just apply to those outside of Christ's prayers. I know at least one person from these words resonate deeply. That's the one standing in front of you delivering the sermon today. Then the issue is not whether one feels social anxiety now or one did in the first century. It is how one steps up to these social anxieties and seeks solutions. So I have Pastor Scott Sauls to thank for because in my years of studying and teaching scriptures and so on, I had never ever thought of Peter having social anxiety. But as I hope to show, I think this quite well, I hope, that there is something deeply ingrained to human nature that seeks approval and belonging and comfort that has a lot to do with social anxiety. So I'd like to share three points for the rest of my time with you, and they're taken straight from the title of the sermon. Again, title that I didn't give, but it works beautifully. The first point is the source of social anxiety. Second point is a solution for healthy conflicts. Third point will be soul for redeemed community. Source, solution, and soul. So the first point is the source of social anxiety. We see that in verses 11 through 13 as it is on the screen. So let's have a deep look at these verses, shall we? 
So we know, friends, right? Peter was a key apostle, at least in the top three among the twelve, and quite likely an uncontested leader among those who joined this Jesus movement after his ascension. The reason why I call this Jesus movement at this time is because it wasn't yet called Christianity. It was actually in this very interesting, dynamically moving period where it is trying to figure out, okay, Jesus is the Messiah for the nation of Israel, what about for the Gentiles? That was the question. And there will be all these ancillary, secondary, and tertiary questions that will emerge as a result. So Peter, like everybody else, was a Jew and became convinced that the Jewish Messiah was none other than Jesus. Okay with me so far, right? What he wasn't convinced about was whether Gentiles could be true believers in the God of Israel, and then even if that were the case, how they were to intermingle. So it had a lot to do with integration and inclusion. First century Christianity wrestled with that a lot, the Jewish and the Gentile question. As we have in this nation of ours, in the past century or before that as well, but integration and inclusion along the color lines. Who is in and who is out? Who is Jew, who is Gentile? Has a lot to do with how we see our identities in light of this Jewish Messiah called Jesus. Acts 10 and Acts 11, chapters 10 and 11, provide crucial backgrounds for Peter's change of mind on this. So did you know that Peter was probably really excited for the Jewish Messiah, and having encountered him, he was ready to go tell every other Jew about who Jesus was. But there is something that happened. That Jesus began to talk about the fact that his movement is going to actually go beyond the Jewish ethnocentric boundaries. Then many questions arose, including for Peter. Peter was in Acts 10, if you have a chance to read it. It's a fantastic story. Fantastic by which I mean you scratch your head. Could this be true? I mean, we believe it is true, but then notice this. Peter is having this very interesting experience. And there is a guy named Cornelius not Cornelius Vanderbilt, but Cornelius the centurion in the Italian regiment of the Roman Imperial Army, who had called for Peter because Cornelius had a very specific vision in which he was told that he should send for Peter, who was in the city of Joppa, hanging out with a guy named Simon the Tanner. And Cornelius was told in the vision, you should go ask for him because he's going to answer the questions that you have about worshiping the true God. So Cornelius dispatches one of his men and says, go get this guy for me because all the questions that I have, and Cornelius will be one of those, one of those persons who would be called a God-fearer, a Gentile who was looking for the true God. And so Peter is now sent, but guess what? Cornelius was a Jew or Gentile? A Gentile. And Peter was a Jew. And that was a problem. Integration and inclusion, remember? And Peter was having some second thoughts. Do I do this? How do I do this? And God actually, so Peter has his vision. He was in a trance and he has a vision of this blanket coming down from heaven with animals that are actually unclean for the Jews to eat. And the first time he comes down and Peter says, no, I'm not going to eat this. And then he has two visions of the same sort. And then he was told at the end with this divine dictum, what God has called clean, you shall not call unclean. So Peter now has a change of mind on this, that he, as a Jewish man, is now recognizing that the Gentiles are also included, and he now meets Cornelius, and then they have this fantastic experience, and at the end of chapter 10, 
of Acts, Peter says, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water because they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So Peter ordered that they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Cornelius and his friends and family, asked Peter to stay with us a little bit longer and explain what this whole thing means for Gentiles now. Right? Get it? So change of heart for Peter a little bit. And Acts chapter 11, there's a trouble brewing in the household of God. Chapter 11 of Acts, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had believed, received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Did you hear that? So what is the problem? It had to do everything to do with eating, your dining companion. For these uh, circumcised believers of Jesus said, you know what? You, one of our leaders, went and ate with people who are not circumcised. Now, you may be sitting there and thinking, what is the big deal? Right? I mean, be honest with me. Some of you are thinking, like, what is the big deal? It was a big deal because for the Jews, they did not actually have much to do with Gentiles. Because there was quite a bit of mutual suspicion and derision and contempt. And this is a movement that is actually seeking to transcend and overcome it. And Christianity throughout its history has had to deal with his own prejudice within the rank and file members of the community regarding those on the outside of them. So that is actually the point that we're trying to develop here. That it is that he actually hears that and then he becomes more convinced that the Gentiles are in. But then in our text as we're reading right there, you know, Peter, um, Paul comes to, uh, Paul is in Antioch, and Cephas called Peter comes to Antioch, and Paul says, I oppose him to his face because he stood condemned. What happened here? He faces all demons again, and we find that in here. In verse 11 that's, that we have on the screen, the James that we read of right there is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, likely the brother of the Lord. It says that before certain men came from James, Peter had no qualms about eating with Gentiles. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when the man from Jerusalem came, he drew back and separated himself because of what? Because of the word fear. Fear was the key word. He began to draw back because he was afraid of the circumcision party. So what is the source of Peter's social anxiety? The word is fear. Now think about fear. Think fear with me right now. In verse 12, being afraid is the Greek word phobomenos, from which we get the word phobia, right? And there are lots of different, lots of, uh, lots of types of phobias, I suppose. Claustrophobia, what is it? You're afraid of closed space. Hemophobia, you're afraid of blood. Autophobia, you're afraid of being alone. Lots of different agoraphobia. And so this, that Greek word uh, phobia means fear. And Paul uses that word to speak of Peter's condition. He was afraid of certain groups of people. Peter's fear was located on the circumcision party or circumcision group. He feared them because he wanted these three things from them that which can only be provided from God and God alone. And they are ABC. ABC is... Approval, belonging, and comfort. Let's think about that. We want it. How many of you struggle with social anxiety? You don't have to raise your hand. Oh, oh, thank you for raising your hand. I have raised my hand. You know what was really funny? 
I was actually speaking in the earlier service, and I experienced social anxiety as I was speaking. Because when you're a speaker, you want to kind of have this kind of back and forth with the audience. And, you know, early morning, I always feel like a baseball player who gets up to bat and in three pitches you strike out. That's how I often feel more often than not about the first service. As a preacher, talking about social anxiety, I was experiencing it, FYI. So I experience social anxiety not only when I'm on the pulpit, but in my life in many ways. You think that by 52, those social anxieties will go away. No, they don't. High school years are very tough for me. And so I'm a pretty well-adjusted person, happy-go-lucky guy. But even now, when I go into like big dining halls and stuff like that, I experience a tiny bit of vertigo. I feel kind of disoriented for a little bit because then I, the high school never sort of leaves you. You don't know who to sit with. You sometimes sit by yourself, eat really quick, and get out of there and get a whole pass to go to the library. Does it make sense to you? Because it makes sense to me because that's me. You see, the Apostle Peter's social anxiety was about belonging, approval, belonging, and comfort. He was looking for it from this group of people, not realizing that true ABC can only come from God. He feared them because he wanted these three things, as I said, approval, belonging, and comfort, without realizing that real thing can only come from the Lord. Listen, friends, fear is a real thing, isn't it? Anxiety is a real thing. Peter's social anxiety was, was a real thing. This is a very crucial period in the history of Judaism and Christianity in that they're beginning to experience the birth pain of Judaism being primarily an ethnically circumscribed religion to Christianity with all of its global pretensions and ambitions. And that meant that for Christianity to thrive, it had to broaden its scope and boundary beyond just Jews because the founder of Christianity, so-called Jesus, told them so. But those who had power at this period were Jewish believers in Jesus. And some of them, and it's important to remember that not all of them were of the circumcision group or party, but they were nonetheless vocal and significant faction within the Jesus follower movement. That's why this letter to Galatia is so important because it is actually setting the boundaries of who's in and who's out, who is included and who is actually part of this integrated community. There were the circumcision group were saying, that if you want to be really legit and OG, you got to get circumcised. That they had yet to see their movement as separate from Judaism entirely. And so many of the Jewish believers in Jesus said, okay, if you're Gentile and you want to follow Jesus, you got to get circumcised. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Because you're confusing the real thing for some kind of old thing now. We see it from the angle of post-separation, but we should see it from the perspective of pre-separation between Judaism and Christianity. So for what I am saying is that for the circumcision group, what they were saying kind of makes sense. Kind of makes sense, but not entirely. Then it begs the question, what is at the core of following Jesus? What does that mean to follow Jesus? Is it to eat or not certain things, or is it eat or not, or follow a certain group of people? That's a real question. Peter was a Jew and a leader among those who believed that Israel's true consolation and the hope thereof was found in the Jesus of Nazareth. It took him a while, to, a long while to figure out how this Jewish leader was to be the most global icon of all, of all time, and he has obviously become that. Well, you know what? So um, Jesus really is a global icon. I think, you know, I was uh, a couple of summers ago, I was in Florida, and I was talking to somebody, got talking to somebody, 
And this person, with whom I really enjoyed a short but really meaningful conversation, reminded me of a couple of characters from the big hit uh, show, uh, Duck Dynasty. You might remember that, uh, Duck Dynasty. And really got enjoying it. And, and I was talking about life in Florida and what it means to be a Christian and how's everything going. And he said, you know, we got guns in Jesus, and that means we're all good. Guns in Jesus. Not guns in roses, but guns in Jesus. And we're okay. The South will rise again. And I realized, coming from the Northeast Philadelphia, before that Seoul, Korea, that, you know what? You find Jesus a lot more in the South. Jesus is virtually ubiquitous. In almost every household, you can find traces of Jesus. Not so in the West Coast, not so in the Northeast. And that's probably why some of the parents are like, we don't want you to go to this godless area for college because we are afraid that you might lose your faith. I get that. But here's the thing, though. In this Jesus-saturated region, of mine and yours, ours, we have had far more incidents and histories and narratives of this inclusion and integration, exclusion and saying no, right? That means that we can actually have a better appreciation for and understanding of what this Jewish and Gentile inclusion and exclusion is all about. It had to do with identity markers. It had to do with ethnic identity for us here, it may be more to do with racial identity. But these identity markers, if not founded solely on Jesus and Jesus alone, will often mislead us and lead us to false idols of security, these false idols that are designed to destruct and disappoint ultimately. You see, when you stop fearing God, you fear everything else. Think of King Lear of one of Shakespeare's plays, tragedies. After he climbs to the top with blood dripping hands, at the apex of power, what does he do? All he experiences is a free fall from power. So the source of Peter's social anxiety was fear, which was born out of desires for approval, belonging, and comfort that A and B offers you. And that leads me to the second point. The second point is solution for healthy conflicts. To be frank here, friends, I find this one tougher to show and explain than the first or third point. So this will probably be a little shorter. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, we all can land ourselves on the same page. So the second point is about solution for healthy conflicts. All right. So we're all assuming here that this conflict between Peter and Paul was a healthy one because the sermon title says so. But what is a healthy conflict? What is an unhealthy conflict? I guess if we're going to have conflicts, we might as well have healthy ones. Healthy ones, I suppose, are the ones that would have some kind of positive resolution or better than good rather than bad resolutions. Well, how is this one a healthy conflict? What constitutes a healthy as opposed to unhealthy conflict will be something we'll try to investigate together. So I have a three proposals here. Healthy or unhealthy conflicts can find their solution when conflicted parties are willing to do these things together. One, see that the solution lies outside of themselves. If you're willing, if let's say I and another friend are in conflict, as Peter and Paul were, they had to come to realize that the solution lies outside of themselves. We cannot fix the problem. We cannot fix the problem no matter how many self-help books we might be able to buy, whether it is a book called You're a Badass or something else or whatever it is. Those things actually are telling us that the solution lies deep within. But I think if you learn nothing else from Christianity, 
It teaches you that solution lies outside of yourself, that it required the advent of someone other than yourself. The Lord and the creator of all things visible and invisible had to come and die in my place, in your place. See that the solution lies outside of ourselves. We cannot fix a problem. One of the books that I read with much light recently was Joseph Bottom, B-O-T-T-U-M, um, his book called Anxious Age, The Post-Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of America, published ages ago in 2014. I mean, you know, like many people don't read anything older than three years. Like, oh, it's an old book. I said, what's an old book? I read things that are written in the 1620s and stuff like that. But be that as it may, in the Washington Post review of this book, Anxious Age, it says that Bottom's argument that the Protestant main line has gone away, rather it has simply evolved into a new form, a religion without God, as it were, in which the Sierra Club, universities, and Democratic Party have supplanted the Methodists and Presbyterians as their teachers of proper values. All right, Sierra Club, University, Democrats, Methodists, and Presbyterians, of these five groups, I can identify with three of them, right? So it says that there has been kind of subtle and, and substantial transition, that it is causing us to look more inward rather than outward, that the, the cause of our problem is this navel-gazing, that we feel like by looking within, we'll find something and we'll find a solution. Bottom actually argues that not so. We have created for ourselves this very anxious age as a result. By turning inward, Bottom argues that we have created a more anxious age in America, perhaps even coming apart at its seams, as Charles Murray argued in that controversial book, Con Coming Apart, The State of White America, 1960 to 2010. Second part of the solution is that not only is the solution outside of ourselves, but the solution has to be beyond our personal or partisan agendas. How do I know that? Let's look at the next verse, if it is okay with the... Uh, in Paul and Peter's cases, right, here, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically all, along with him, but when I saw that the co their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, uh-huh, that's it right there. That it is, Paul recognized that the gospel is actually bigger and beyond him, that it is not about him, that it is actually beyond him, so it is actually beyond our personal or partisan agenda. They were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. The third part of the solution was that the gospel has to come back again and again to the identity of Jesus. What is the gospel? It has everything to do with the identity of Jesus and what it meant and means for the Gentiles as the newly invited dinner guests to really access Jesus. Access is the thing. We're all here. Think about it like this, friends. You're all ostensibly sitting in worship service. Some of you are like, I don't want to be here. I'm forced to be here. Okay, I get that. But those of you who came relatively voluntarily, you came here to access God. It's like when your phone is running low, I mean, you know, like let's say it's at 2%, what you really need to do is plug into the source, plug into the electrical source. All of you, me included, are here to access God because we believe that by accessing God through Jesus Christ, we get what we need. We actually find the right bearing for our lives. And this meant that it was true not only for the Jews, but all for the Gentiles as well. Circumcision was not going to be a requirement for membership. How does one really access all of Jesus today? Does it require signing up for Reformed theology or only Reformed theology? Now, I'm a Reformed theology person myself, but I wouldn't say so. Yeah, Jesus is good, but you got to be Presbyterian for you to be a real follower of Jesus. I'm a Presbyterian, and I, I don't think so. What about Jesus and nothing else? 
That leads me to my final point. The third point is the soul of redeemed community. How do we know, it's an important question, that they found solution to their healthy conflict that is between Peter and Paul? How do we know, right? Because it leaves us sort of hanging. The verse kind of, our text ends, Peter, I mean, Paul says to Cephas, says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And throughout the rest of the letter of Galatians, we're not told as to whether they resolve their conflict. But there's a clue, though. We have a clue in Peter's own writing. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, if you care to read it, you'll find that Peter actually refers to Paul's writings as scriptures, God's word. And that's a pretty high compliment, perhaps the highest type of compliment an author can receive and give, right? If you write a paper and if you write a letter and someone says, okay, Matt, your, your letter is going to be the Bible, you'd be like, what? How can that be part of the Bible? And Peter says about Paul's writings that, you know what, Paul's writings are scriptural. That means that Peter has reconciled, and that's my best conjecture, that he's now at a place of seeing Paul's apostolic authority and teaching and writings as on a par with him. Apostolic, thus kind of relevant to be regarded scriptural. So what is at the core of the soul of redeemed community? One word, friends, one word. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. You know, holidays remind us of the desperate need for reconciliation. Vertically with God, perhaps, but far more likely horizontally with our neighbors and families and friends. One of my uh, spiritual heroes is this person uh, who's from South Africa. His name is Bishop Desmond Tutu. And he's written this wonderful book called No Future Without Forgiveness. So you might remember that South Africa has gone through this apartheid experience, so from which you have heroes like Nelson Mandela and others, right? So Bishop Tutu was one of the spiritual advisors for Nelson Mandela, and he, after the harrowing experience of the apartheid, he wrote this book called No Future Without Forgiveness. For the nation of South Africa to move forward, what they had to do was forgive each other, ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness. And that means they were seeking, they ought to be seeking reconciliation. And Bishop Tutu's words were tr rang true not only for South Africans right after the apartheid and all the trials that uh, ensued thereafter, but also is true for all of us. Similarly, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said these words in a speech that he gave 62 years ago. And the speech was entitled, The Role of the Church in Facing the Nation's Chief Moral Dilemma. 62 years ago, he said these words, and I'll say those words in just a few, but I read it recently and said to myself, this is so true for today. So what is the church's role in facing our country's chief moral dilemma? King said, simply, reconciliation. He said, our nation is divided right now between those who have power and those who don't have power, those who have access and those who don't have access, and King, as a Baptist preacher, said that what we need is reconciliation. He said the end goal is reconciliation. The goal is redemption. The goal is the creation of the beloved community. That beloved community was a key phrase and key concept, key reality for King. 
It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform enemies into friends. The type of love that I stress here is not eros, a sort of aesthetic or romantic love, nor is it philia, a sort of reciprocal love between personal friends. But this love is agape, which is understanding goodwill for all people. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. It is the love of God working in the lives of men. This is the love that may well be the salvation of our civilization. The love that may well be the salvation of our civilization. Let me bring this to a close. You might say, you know what, Paul, you have no idea. I have social anxieties and I have anxieties upon anxieties. And I feel like I failed in betraying people. And yes, um, I have... When I was in high school, so I, I shared that I had a pretty difficult time period in, in, in high school. Um, so there was a new friend who had moved from the West Coast, and his name is, let's call him Perry. Um, he was slightly oddly dressed, and, uh, but he, I didn't have many friends, and he saw it's kind of, oh, you don't have a lot of friends? I don't have a lot of friends, so we became, became very good friends. And as time went on in my high school career, I began to have some more friends. But then the common reality for my cool friends was that they didn't like Perry. And one day came, my faithful day in my high school day, career, my friend said, you know what, basically, to make a long story short, basically said, go push Perry. Basically, it was a do or die kind of you're in or out based upon what you, or you, you will or you wouldn't do. They said, you know, go push Perry because we need to show that you're not really in with Perry. What would you do? What did I do? I wish I could stand here and tell you that I pushed the other guys and said, screw you, I'm standing with Perry. Out of fear of exclusion, I went and pushed Perry. I still remember Perry's look. His eyes and my eyes met. I averted the gaze, pushed Perry in order to be included. You know what, friends? Among many things I've done in my life, I think about that friend. I recently tried to look him up. I couldn't find him. You know what I realized? Jesus became that Perry for me. Jesus became that Perry that I pushed away and like Perry, this dear friend, he did not retaliate. You see, friends, we have social anxieties. You may be in high school, you have social anxieties. I may be, geez, 33 years out of high school and I still have social anxieties. You may be 74 and have social anxieties. That seems to be a common language for a lot of people. Peter, for crying out loud, the apostle Peter has social anxiety. The solution is found in Christ. I realize it sounds so cheap, it sounds so pedantic, but I don't know what other answers to give you. What other answers to my crying heart I, I could offer myself. You might have had Perry's in your life. You might have been, you might be that Perry right now. We need to come to the table asking the Lord for forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation because only in Christ do we find our true acceptance belonging, and comfort. Pray with me.
Gracious God. Thank you for restoring us unto yourself. In many ways, we, we push you aside. We render you invisible in our lives. And yet again and again, through your Holy Spirit, you come after us. Through your Holy Spirit, you remind us that we belong to you. Lord, we thank you for those restoring mercies. At the same time, we ask for your work within us to be such that we become the restoring agents of our broken lives, broken stories, broken systems, and broken cisterns indeed. We ask that you will fill us with yourself, that we may experience that joy as we will as we come to the table, as we run to the table, knowing that it is you who is beckoning us to come and eat and drink and be filled. So thank you for that invitation May we not only participate in it, but proclaim the saving reality of Jesus as we go from here, as redeemed community, as we understand that the soul of the redeemed community is in reconciliation that has happened, that is happening, that will continue to happen. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.